welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co slash cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward slash cleantechnica. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks, uh, where I continue my discussion about Michael Leibrick's hydrogen ladder with Paul Martin, chemical process engineer, who builds chemical process modular plants for a living, and he's been working with hydrogen, biofuels, and synthetic fuels for decades. I'd like to talk a bit about the top line of the A's, the unavoidables. That's right. Because I'm, my current take is I'm disagreeing with a fair amount. Well, you know, I think there's things to disagree with there too. So yeah, let's get into that a little bit. Okay. Let me just tell people what's on the top line. First, there's fertilizer. That's ammonia nit nitrogen fertilizer. The ammonia, as Paul was just saying, is made with hydrogen. Hydrogen comes from fossil fuels and nitrogen comes from air. Our air is 78% is nitrogen, so it's easy. Bop. Then there's uh, methanol, which Paul had mentioned, which is used for a whole bunch of industrial processes and it's useful stuff and it's going to persist. I don't see the market for that diminishing. And to be clear, I've been in the head offices of Methanex, the 800 pound gorilla of the global methan methanol market because they're here in Vancouver. You know, But I, it's not that big a market and it goes up and down depending upon needs and it's useful stuff. Then there's Three things, hydrogenation, hydrocracking, and desulfurization. Mm -hmm. Paul, why don't you tell us what hydrogenation, hydrocracking, and desulfurization are and where they occur? And what, yeah, what the sure. This is really, this is good because let's, let's think for a moment about a barrel of petroleum, okay? A barrel of, of crude oil. Right now, about 75%, between 75 and 85% of that barrel ultimately ends up being burned. That's the way that we, we use that precious, finite, fossil, liquid material right now. We use it in the, in the way that uh, Mendeleev, who's the guy that came up with the periodic table, so he knew a thing or two about chemistry, he said that burning petroleum is basically the same as you know keeping warm by burning banknotes in your kitchen stove. It's about as dumb as that. And I agree with him because I've spent best portion of my career trying to help people make things that we need desperately uh, and alternatives to them out of materials other than petroleum. And I can tell you it's child's play in comparison to make uh, energy from things that don't emit CO2 than it is to try to do that, to try to basically take a million sow's ears and make one silk purse out of them. It, it's very difficult. So hydrocracking and desulfurization, about 75 to 85% of the hydrocracking and desulfurization that we do right now, we do because we're going to burn the petroleum at the end of it. Okay, we're going to burn diesel or gasoline. We have and, to remove uh, the sulfur. Let's be clear. I, I'm going to raise the level of abstraction. Hydrogenation, hydrocracking, and desulfurization, as I understand it, occur in petroleum refineries. They well, are except, well, the hydrogenation also occurs in 
food production, a few other things. But desulfurization and hydrocracking are refinery operations. They occur in refineries for the purpose of making fossil fuels. And when we stop burning fossils as fuels, we'll only need to do about 15 to 25% as much desulfurization as we do now. So the demand for hydrogen for desulfurization and hydrocracking, it's going to drop like a rock when we stop making gasoline and diesel. And, and I think hydrogenation, to your point, it's split. Yes, there's hydrogenated vegetable oil, but hydrogenation and petroleum refineries, I expect, would reduce as well. Well, we, uh, you know, honestly, when, when people talk about hydrogenation, there usually is kind of chemical engineering geekiness here, but they're usually talking about something distinct from hydro-treating, which mm-hmm. is really that the thing that he's, the box that he's put there that's called hydrocracking. It's really or desulfurization, it's really hydrotreating. And you hydrotreat to remove a bunch of different molecules, not just sulfur. So uh, the, the refinery operations, like I said, I think, about, I think the refinery uses of hydrogen are going to drop by between 75 and 85%, and that'll just be gone. But we'll be left with a little bit of hydrogenation that's left for making chemicals of certain kinds that we need. Yeah. Okay, so that's three of the five boxes, two of the five boxes, hydrocracking, desulfurization, Uh, Now, I found the International Energy Association, IEA's, assertion about the market for hydrogen. And um, the interesting statistic that came out of that is that 55% of all the global annual hydrogen market is those two boxes, hydrocracking and desulfurization in petroleum refineries. So, Okay, so we have to be a little... Okay. Again, we've got to be a little bit careful because the trouble with hydrogen is that when people say hydrogen, they think of just hydrogen as pure hydrogen. When you expand hydrogen out and you include hydrogen that's produced and used in the form of synthesis gas, it's a little bit less than that, Michael. So it might be 55% of the 70 million tons a year of pure hydrogen that we use in the world, but it's less than 55% of the 120 million tons of overall hydrogen that we use in the world because we use the balance the other 50 million tons in the form of syngas okay and this is a very this is part of the reason I'm, we're having this conversation so that i can learn more but regardless round numbers about half let's say half, yeah. half. big chunk That's pretty good big. i i way i've been thinking about it is i i i use the numbers from uh irina study international yep. renewable energy uh association uh, or authority uh in europe and so their figures came out to 120 million tons, about 40 million of which was used in petroleum refining. And I figured about 30 of that 40 would go away when we stopped burning fossils. So I figured we need about 90 left. And right. the 90 that's left, we need for all these other things that we use hydrogen for right now, which is making chemicals. It's about 10% of it is used to reduce iron ore to iron metal in a process that's called direct iron reduction. Uh, so let's, let's, stay, let's stay on the top line. Yeah. Because the, uh, the, the IEA study said... But about half of it is fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. But half of it is fertilizer. And, and you and I are going to spend more time on the agricultural side because right. you actually own a farm and do, understand yeah. this. Uh, we have different aspects of the soil chemistry and biology that we understand. You from a direct ownership perspective and being a chemical engineer. And me just from reading and learning and talking yeah. to people like the guy I talked to... Um, couple of weeks ago, Carson Teme, the CEO of Pivot Bio, who are doing that really cool nitrogen fixing microbe stuff. That'll be part of that other conversation you and I have. But the fertilizer, 
my assertion, so I looked at the IEA statistics and the fertilized global fertilizer market has stayed roughly flat in terms of the use of hydrogen for fertilizer has stayed roughly flat for 30 years. The growth has been in petroleum refinery use of hydrogen. Now, you know, we can quibble about the numbers, but that market has stayed flat and I believe it's going to diminish. And I think it stayed flat for a few reasons. One of them is precision agriculture and more effective use of fertilizer. I think that's going to increase across vastly more of the world because it's electronics that enable that more, more than not. You know, GPS and computers, and those are dirt cheap components. Yep. So statement two. I don't, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's okay. right. Statement two, there's high tillage agriculture versus low tillage agriculture. High tillage is what we think about. It's like, you know, after the harvest, you know, you pull a tractor with a bunch of uh, hose on the back through a field and you rip the field up and you throw furrows of dirt over and you expose all the worms and then you slap a bunch of fertilizer down on it and it sits there over the winter and then you put seeds in and more fertilizer and more fertilizer and more fertilizer and more fertilizer. That's high tillage agriculture. Low tillage agriculture leaves the soil surface intact and the below soil uh, biome intact, punches a hole through and plants the seed and using precision agriculture, adds fertilizer, pesticides and herbicides as necessary at the seed point without tilling the soil and with a lot less compaction of the soil and a lot fewer problems of other types. And, and my assertion is that because that has strong short-term and long-term carbon sequestration benefits, that's going to turn into a preferred model. And then the major agribusinesses, not small hold farms, but at least the major agribusinesses are going to get carroted and sticked, sticked until they adopt a lot more high, uh, low tillage agriculture and low tillage agriculture by definition uses a lot less fertilizer. So that's statement two about a fertilizer demand reduction. So the third, I agree that fertilizer demand reduction will happen and that low tillage agriculture is part of that. Uh, the mechanics of it, we can talk about during our next show. Yeah. yeah. The third thing is Karsten Temme's Pivot Bio and many other competitors are doing biogenetics to reduce or eliminate nitrogen fertilizer entirely. You know, and Carson you know, Pivot Bio is already at 20 to 25% of volume and mass of nitrogen fertilizer for corn crops on a million acres today. Their target, which I think is a tremendously great target, is 100% by 2030. If they get to 80%, good enough. If they get to 80% for the top three food crops in the world, grains and rice and corn, that's amazing. And that all of these things mean we're going to be using a lot less fertilizer which means we need a lot less hydrogen for that top line. And so I look at that top line, I look at, fertilize, I look at fertilizer, hydrocracking, and desulfurization, and I say the bottom is dropping out of the market for hydrogen, not increasing. So I, I'm going to agree with you that I think that there's tremendous potential for biogenetic alternatives to using ammonia the way that we're using it. We can also be a lot smarter about how we're using that ammonia. Uh, I know that that's being done on, on our own farm by our neighbor who farms it for us. I think low tillage really uh, helps a lot with a lot of things, one of which is it makes the, uh, uh, the use of um, crop rotations more effective as, as a way to enhance uh, soil chemistry so that the uh, the cash crops uh, do a better job and get better yields. 
So I agree with you. I think that the likelihood is that our need for fertilizer will decrease. And it's a good thing because artificial fertilizer use is producing that same nitrous oxide. And it's a tremendous greenhouse gas emission. So the trouble with fertilizer right now is it kind of gets us on both ends. You get a lot of CO2 generated making this fossil hydrogen that's used to make ammonia, which is then used to make all the fertilizers. And then you put it in the ground. And if you use too much of it and you don't use it well, the soil uh, microbes turn it into nitrous oxide and it leaves. It doesn't end up in the plants. It ends up leaving to the atmosphere and becomes a persistent greenhouse gas, 300 times worse than CO2. So it really, we have to do a better job about fertilizer and we have to reduce how much ammonia we use. So I totally agree with all of that. And from the pure hydrogen perspective, what it gets down to is, you know, we can quibble about the numbers. The numbers I use are the IEA numbers. You referenced the IRENA numbers. IEA numbers are 55%, 37% for petroleum refinery use and fertilizer. And I say those are going to diminish. And we can quibble about whether that means that it, you know, it turns into 20% of those numbers or whatever. But the yeah, point is... Or whatever it is, it's, it's, whatever it is, it's going to be better. We don't need quite as much green hydrogen to replace quite so much of that stuff, but boy, it's still a huge use. It, yeah. And it, it's going to be a big use, but it's not... It, one thing that, that Liebreich's ladder doesn't represent is the diminishment of those major consumption things on the unavoidable line. Right. That's true. And, and that is a weakness. I mean, it is a schematic thing and yeah. it's, it's useful. Um, I mean, I, I like to summarize my position on hydrogen in an even simpler way. It's really simple. We don't use hydrogen as a fuel right now because it's not a good fuel. And we shouldn't think about using hydrogen as a fuel in the future either because it's not a good fuel. So if you, if you look at it that way, you can categorize all of these things on the ladder into two things. One is, is the hydrogen being used as a fuel or is the hydrogen being used as a chemical for some other purpose? And all the high priority things, they're all using the, the hydrogen not as a fuel, but as a chemical for some other purpose. So it's really simple. Don't use hydrogen as a fuel. It's a bad fuel. And I'm going to pull out the last item on the second line, the B line, long-term storage. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah. And, and I'm going to be very transparent on this. I think Germany might shove some hydrogen into one of the salt mines that it has, uh, salt caverns. I, I've actually been in a, on a, when I was a kid, I lived in Germany and we went to um, Salzburg in Vienna or um, in Austria. And I got on a, went down into an old salt mine and got on a raft and actually motored under the Austrian Germany border on a salt lake, hundreds of meters underground. I know they exist. I've been there, but I think Germany's got this really weird perspective on hydrogen. They do. And I, I haven't been able to quite figure out why they are like Japan in this regard, but they do. And, and so I think they might do long-term storage with hydrogen just because they're weird and stupid about it <laughs> and they actually and, have salt caverns by their chemical industry to, to a, an unholy extent yeah so long-term storage the trouble with long-term storage is this it's it's not a technical thing it's an echo and i know how boring that can be to talk about but we have to talk about it for a minute the thing about the use of renewable energy renewable electricity that everybody gets themselves tied up in a knot about is that it's, it's intermittent and it's not 
what they call dispatchable, meaning that you can't have it just every time that you want it. You, you get it when you get it. And when it's not there, it's not there. So you have to level it out somehow. And of course you can do a certain amount of it with batteries. And then there are other storage techniques, uh, some of which Michael has talked about and we could talk about at length later. But the seductive one that people keep coming up with is this idea. Here's the idea, not my idea, but here's the idea that's being, that's always been pitched. What you do is you build a bunch of wind and solar and you're going to have periods in the summer where there's too much of it and you're not going to be able to put enough of it in batteries and so on to do much with for the longer term. So what you do is you, you use just this excess electricity to run an electrolyzer and you do that just in the summer to make hydrogen that you then shove into a durable place like a salt cavern, as an example. And then you use it again in the winter. And it sounds great, right? We're, we're taking electricity that would otherwise go to waste and we're putting it to some productive purpose and we're solving the need for energy during this uh, these dark doldrums or dark calm periods. Dunkerflot. Dunkerflot, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, dark, <laughs> dark, uh, the dark calm. So the, the idea sounds extremely seductive. And the devil is there waving his pitchfork in the details again. Yep. So first of all, if electrolyzers, the things that you use to make hydrogen from water using electricity, were so cheap that they were handing them out in, in um, cereal packages as a prize, then it would work great. Because they, you know, if they were super, super cheap, then you wouldn't care about the fact that you've got an electrolyzer that could make you, say, a thousand kilograms a day of hydrogen, but you're only running it in the summer and you're only running it like 10% of its capacity and just in the summer, you know? So if you've got a thousand kilogram a day capacity electrolyzer that could make you whatever that would be, you know, 365,000 kilograms a, a year of hydrogen if you ran it flat out using electricity from goodness knows where, a nuclear plant or something. But you only use it to make 300 kilograms a year of hydrogen or even 3000 kilograms a year of hydrogen, the cost per kilogram of hydrogen is going to be nuts. Like it's going to be insane because electrolyzers not only are not cheap, they're very expensive. So, so it, we can't even afford right now to make green hydrogen using electricity, renewable electricity, unless we use the entire output of combined wind and solar hybrid projects that have high availability as a result of the sun shining intensely in a desert region during the day. And then the opposite happening at night when the land cools down, air rushes in off the, uh, off the sea to run the wind turbines. And when you have those special cases that happen in Western Australia, Western Chile, a handful of other places in the world. Eastern, Northern and, Brazil, Northeastern Brazil. Yeah, you can, you can get these high capacity factor renewable sources that are high enough in capacity factor that an expensive electrolyzer might be used just enough to make hydrogen that's only three or four times as expensive as the black stuff. And the problem, of course, with that is they're in the wrong place. They are. And, and the, the real problem with it is, remember how we were talking about hydrogen being very low density? That makes it hard to move. So basically, substantially all the hydrogen in the world right now, we make right where it's used. Like it moves not even across the fence. It, it moves from one part of the same chemical plant to the other. It's made from methane. 
in a, a steam reformer that's located in one block of the refinery and it moves in a pipe, you, you know, a few hundred meters to the methanol plant or whatever it is that's consuming it. And that's how we use hydrogen because moving hydrogen is hard. But if you're making a ton, you know, not a ton, thousands of tons of hydrogen uh, in Western Australia, and you want to sell it to somebody in Japan or Germany or, or what have you, you're not going to sell it as hydrogen. You're going to have to make something like ammonia out of it. Well, and except you, you listen to the uh, liberals in Australia, if you listen to the liberals in Australia, they actually think they're going to be shipping hydrogen in compressed or liquefied in tankers. It's yeah, just as bad. It's insane. just as just yeah, as stupid as the liquid insane. national. That will not happen. There, there are ways to move it. You can convert it to other molecules of a very a variety of different kinds. So these things that are called liquid organic hydrogen carriers. One perfect example is you, you use um, toluene, which is a, an aromatic solvent, and you react it with hydrogen uh, where you have lots of hydrogen, and you get a bunch of heat generated, and you make methyl cyclohexane, which is another liquid, and you ship that to destination. And then you run the reverse process at the destination, but you have to put heat in this time because thermodynamics is reversible that way. So you have to put in heat where you need energy, which is kind of inconvenient. And you end up making the toluene again and hydrogen, and then you have to ship the toluene back to the first place. So it's, it's, that's kind of rough. Yeah, I know it's, it's heavily lossy. Yeah. Every time people talk about heat-based storage or creating heat for industrial purposes, I say heat is not transmissible easily. Yeah, heat's troublesome. And this is the other thing, uh, being a chemical engineer, I have an education in thermodynamics that is kind of hard to forget. Uh, oh, you, 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 heretic, bringing up thermodynamics in discussion. It's a tool, it's a tool you use a lot. And, and <laughs> well, there's the thing that, that there's the thing that it is a little bit religious in that I have something that I call the first sin of thermodynamics. And this is my own thing. I never heard somebody talk about this before. Uh, so I think I, I came up with it. And um, what I call the first sin of thermodynamics is, you know, thou shalt not compare two kinds of energy as equal just because they have the same units, units of energy. So as an example, if I have, I don't know, a kilowatt hour or a joule of um of heat that I use to heat my house at, you know, 20 degrees C it's a, it's a joule, just like a joule or a, a kilowatt hour of electricity that I could use to run my electric car or my, you know, lights in my, uh, in my room here, but they're not worth the same. And uh, the, the, the way I put this is that, you know, energy is like denominating money in dollars. If somebody tells you that they're going to give you so many dollars, you want to make sure you know whether they're going to give you so many Canadian dollars or so many American dollars or so many Jamaican dollars, okay? And heat is measured in joules, but heat isn't worth the same as electricity or, or mechanical energy or thermodynamic work. Heat and work are different. And thermodynamic thermodynamicists refer to this usable fraction of energy as something called exergy, and it's a little bit of a ponderous thing, and not very many people, in, in fact, not all, all that many engineers understand what exergy is, but exergy is really kind of the potential to make work. And so electricity is basically all exergy. You know, you can convert it to work really easily, mechanical energy, you can convert it to mechanical energy really easily and with high efficiency. But heat, it's exergy, how much 
mechanical energy you can make out of it depends on its temperature. So there's good heat and there's middling heat and there's bad heat and there's utterly useless heat that's just waste. So uh, we end up with uh, all of it's measured in joules and yet it's not worth the same because it has very different ex exergenic value. So that's the trouble with hydrogen. You hear a lot of people making this first sin of thermodynamics um, comparison saying, well, you know, it's cheaper to move a joule of hydrogen than it is to move a joule of electricity. It's like, yeah, that's probably true. It is probably true that you can move a joule of hydrogen for less than you can move a joule of electricity. But a joule of hydrogen is worth one third of a joule of electricity. So you gotta move three joules. So is moving three joules of hydrogen cheaper than moving one joule of electricity? Probably not. It's probably not even close. So yeah, first sin of thermodynamics, dare not sin. Clean Tech Talk is brought to you by Voltus, a leading technology platform connecting distributed energy resources to electricity markets, delivering less expensive, more reliable, and more sustainable electricity. Voltus is on a mission to help solve the climate crisis by unlocking the full value of distributed energy resources, and we want your help getting there. To view our open positions, visit voltus.co slash cleantechnica. That's www.voltus.co forward slash cleantechnica. So long-term storage, I'll, I'll kind of take the three or four chunks. One, long-term storage depends upon geological formations like salt caverns, which are already capped and sealed with easily capped places because hydrogen will get out if they aren't. Right. And you have to mine them using water and you have to dump all of that saline water somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, you've got... So Germany's salt caverns they used for mining salt you know they actually have one two it has to be really close to where you've got high value a highly reliable wind and solar both working in order to you know it's, it's closeness second third you've got to have you know so that you can then minimize the expense the wasted capital expense of your expensive electrolyzers and so that's all that and then you've got the thermal management problem because even if you want to get hydrogen out of something, it actually has to be pressurized in order for you to get any value out of it. So you have to pressurize it going in. And Paul and I have talked about the waste lossiness of pressurizing and depressurizing hydrogen and the thermal management of that. And then there's the final problem, which is when you run it through a fuel cell and turn it back into electricity, it's only about 60% efficient. At best. At best. You know, I, I, I'm very, I try to be really, really nice to failed technologies and I yeah, give them every, I give them every benefit of the doubt. And I, I say, too. I use 60% in my calculations too, because it's the best you can buy. Yeah. And uh, way I said, round trip for hydrogen from electricity to hydrogen and back the best possible scenario under perfect conditions is 43% return of energy. Yeah, 37 is what I come up with because I, I use 10% for the uh, storage. But anyway, yeah, around yeah, yeah. about 37% best case. And the, and the other thing you have to keep in mind is that, oh, and I hate to do this to people, but even when you talk about energy in the form of heat, you know, the, the heat content of a, of a fuel, you have to worry about whether you're talking about gross or higher heating value or you're talking about net or lower heating value. And the difference between those two for hydrogen is six kilowatt hours per kilogram. 
So the, the higher heating value, which includes the heat of condensation of the product water is 39.4 kilowatt hours per kilogram of hydrogen. And the lower heating value is about 33 kilowatt hours per kilogram. And there's the kicker. If you're using it to make electricity or mechanical energy, you lose six kilowatt hours per kilogram and you can't fix that. It's irretrievably gone. Yeah, it's, it's physics. It's chemistry. It's a problem. It's, and you can't fix it with innovation either. It's not like we're waiting for no. a better catalyst or whatever. These are properties. Hydrogen's problems are two things. Hydrogen's properties as a molecule, which you can't change. And hydrogen's thermodynamics as a chemical reagent, which you can't change. So that's the trouble. You can't fix those with better technology. So using long-term storage, if you might have in Northern Germany, a salt cavern that's perfectly positioned with, oh wait, Northern Germany has sucky solar. Uh, so no. But still, let's pretend they do this. They get maybe 30% with all the other stuff for the Dunkel flock. But what are the alternatives? And my alternatives are pushing water uphill, which we've been doing commercially since 1907. Right. Pumped hydro. It works. It's easy. can be done with coal workers and unskilled labor. Um, we know how to build it. It's fit for purpose. It doesn't have any of these weird problems we've been talking about. It doesn't have thermal management problems. Yeah. So the, so the upper pond. It's really attractive. Everything. And you know, Michael, where it's really attractive is, is, is where you and I both live. I mean, we live at different ends of the country, but both ends of the country have lots of hydropower around. And right now we use the hydropower in a way that's kind of smart by 1950s thinking, if you will. Yeah. And we need to start thinking about hydropower in the context of the coming renewable energy revolution in a different way. And that is we need to think of hydropower as kind of our peaking power because yeah. it is dispatchable and we don't think of it that way quite so much. And we really need to. So what we can do is we can use existing hydro resources as the battery of North America for lots and lots and lots more wind and solar. Now, it's not necessarily Dunkelflaute kind of kind of storage that you can you can manage here. When I think of the Dunkelflaute, I think of the, you know this dark calm. What I think of is these periods of a, of a week to a week to a week and a half in the middle of the winter that you get here in Ontario, where you get a great big dump of snow that covers the solar panels for a few days, and then you get actually what tends to happen is you get bright sunny weather with no wind because a high pressure area sets in and uh, wind is the big, the big thing that, that uh, dies off and wind right now makes about 7% of the electricity in Ontario on a year round average. But there are periods of a week to a week and a half every single winter. And there might be more than one of them every single winter where the wind doesn't blow at all. You basically not make any wind energy. And for those periods of time, what I think we should do, and maybe this will make me a heretic, and I, you know, maybe you'll have to throw the holy water at me or whatever, but I think we should burn fossil fuels during those periods because we've got an infrastructure already in place to store methane, natural gas, power plants that can burn it, and they're going to be worthless most of the time. And if we're right. only burning fossil fuels to make our energy during emergencies, during, you know, periods of a week to a week and a half per year, 
as a way to not have to do crazy things like making giant quantities of hydrogen at, at very high cost and then storing it for using a week to a week and a half a year, then we've already licked AGW. Like the global warming problem has already been dealt with. So from my perspective, that's what I think we should do. I agree up to a point. I agree in totally that we're going to be doing lower capacity factors and thermal generation from natural, from natural gas through 2100 to the point where it's like 1% and then 0% and it's gone. Where I disagree is that Ontario is an artificial boundary as an energy market. It makes no sense to talk about Ontario or Germany as if they were isolated or would remain isolated. Yep, I agree um, with you. And in, my, and in my list of solutions, my suite of solutions, and I've got an article where I put all this together one time because people got... I got tired of people telling me that I was just a, a Debbie Downer who was telling everybody that their ideas were no good and I wasn't putting my own ideas forward. I put my own ideas forward and I think they're consistent and they make sense. But what I call that is wider grids. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, Michael, we need a grid across the entire world. And hopefully it'll go between, it'll go across the uh, short distance between North America and, and Asia and it maybe one day it'll even go across the North Pole. Well, you know, you know what China's um, head of their uh, national utility actually proposed this in 2016. That makes well, perfect sense to me. You know, this is the thing that drives me crazy is that, when, you know, you get people talking about, and of course, they're fossil fuel people, talking about how they want to put in uh, hydrogen generation in Saudi Arabia. And they, they want to make ammonia and then ship it to Germany and then use it to run buses and trucks, which, you know, Michael Liebreich and all of us agree is a dumb idea. But they, they want to do this because they just conclude for some bizarre reason that it's totally impossible to get electricity from North Africa to Europe. And the thing is, there's already electricity flowing from North Africa to Europe. It's um, already happening. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite projects is uh, under development. It's not under construction yet, but it's a massive solar farm in the outback of Australia where there's right. enormous amounts of sun and a long high voltage direct current underwater cable going 4,600 kilometers to Singapore. Yeah, that one is pitched. And, you know, I, I, I think that's, I, I think the optimism associated with that is just delightful. I'm talking about things that are much simpler than that. I know. <laughs> Running a cable underneath, you know, between uh, between Morocco and Spain is dead easy. Like it's not. Yep. No, it isn't. This is people. They, they seem to believe that transmitting electricity is something that's hard. When James Bay in northern Canada, and I've been up there. I lived up in Moosonee for uh, you know a year or two when I was a, before I remembered anything. But I've actually lived in Moosonee. It ships electricity. 1,900 miles, 1,000 miles down to New York State. Yep. And, and from northern, from not northern, but from Labrador as yeah. well, uh, across the, the Gulf of St. Lawrence to northern. The, the yeah. northern HVDC uh, is in Labrador. Now that was, you know, I'm not going to hold up Muskrat Falls as a, an amazing act of good grace in economics or engineering, but, you know, it's there. It's now well, working. Church, Churchill Falls, for that matter, going all the way back to the early days of Newfoundland uh, joining uh, Confederation, 
we've been moving power down south from northern locations by HVDC for many decades, and it works great. I mean, we pioneered that technology here in Canada, and for I mean, for that reason, because we had power in giant quantities, dispatchable, and a market just hungry for it in in uh, northeastern United States. And we took advantage of that and to the tremendous benefit of the world, honestly, because of all the greenhouse gas emissions that were eliminated as a consequence. So from my perspective, I think that people have kind of a burner box on their head. They look at things and they think, well, we're burning stuff to do things now. All we need to do is find a new fuel. And instead, they should be thinking about how do we get the energy that we need? And if it's starting with electricity, the obvious solution is use electricity. Yeah. And my take on you know, the, the energy corridor for Canada I want is a cross Canada following the highway or the railway, pick one uh, HVDC pipeline that brings, you know, bi-directional brings uh, electrons. Yeah, you need two of them because they are, yeah. I think, inherently unidirectional. But I, I agree that uh, east-west makes sense and north-south makes sense and the whole uh, network across the world makes sense. And yeah. that's where we have to go long term. And I think that the other thing that we have to get out of our heads, we have to understand the difference between efficiency that matters and efficiency that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I'll express that this way. Everybody, myself included, who has an off-grid power system that they use in, inherently understands this. So up at my farm, my little farm, it's too far away from power poles to make it worth running power poles. And we don't use enough electricity to make it worth bringing in power uh, to buy kilowatt hours more cheaply from the grid. So we naturally put in an off-grid system. And that off-grid system, it has more panels than we need in the summertime because panels are cheap. It has enough panels so that we get enough electricity in the wintertime. And in the summertime that we make more electricity than we need, and in fact, we don't even, it doesn't even get produced from the panels. It, it, it's the panels just get, just get switched off. That I don't cry any tears over that at all. And I certainly don't try to buy enough battery capacity because batteries are still expensive to store electricity uh, sufficiently to overcome the, the periods of time in the summer where I have excess and try to, I, I don't try to stay, save that energy into the winter. I just buy more panels and set my panel capacity on the basis of my winter electricity needs. And, and that's I buy one of the much, big things, right? Yeah. And uh, I buy, overbuilding I buy cheap, as much, I buy over, as much battery as I can afford. Overbuilding cheap renewables is going to be a massive part of the solution. And, and people say, Oh, but isn't that wasteful? And the answer is yes and no. Because that energy is falling on the earth anyway. And unlike a, a, a fossil or even a nuclear power plant, when, when you make energy with one of those, uh, those sources, nuclear or, or fossil fuel, or biofuel for that matter, and you don't use the electricity, that's a straight up waste, right? And it has a cost. But when you have a solar panel and you don't need the electricity from it, you just turn it off. There's no negative price. This negative pricing business comes from markets. It has nothing to do with there being a cost. All that happens is that the energy that you were going to um, 
maybe hope to make money from, you're not making money from. So each kilowatt hour costs you a little bit more in a sense because you've, you've spent the same amount of capital and you haven't used quite as many of them, but there are no real costs associated with turning a solar panel off. And the same is true with a wind turbine. And, but once you've made the electricity and you've put it onto the grid, or you've, in my case, stored it in the batteries, how efficiently you use it matters. It makes, it, it makes sense now, right? So overbuilding really isn't a giant waste. I mean, we shouldn't do it to an absurd extent because wind turbines and solar panels have embodied energy and emissions associated with them. They're not perfect technologies. They have some emissions. So we, we, shouldn't, do, we shouldn't go nuts. We should try to moderate our demand and, and do all the right things in order to, to minimize how much overbuilding we have to do. But we shouldn't at all be afraid of overbuilding. We're going to do lots of it. It's going to be the thing that makes sense. All of this is an aid of long-term storage and hydrogen don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> so back to the, yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about before we close, because we're you know running out of time here, yeah. is steel. So mm-hmm. news from Sweden, first steel from green hydrogen manufactured with wind energy was delivered to Volvo to use in building their cars this the last week or the week before. And I see that as a very high merit order use of any green hydrogen that we might want to make. So I do have to back up a little bit here, though, because I think people don't, like I said, I I was surprised by this. I didn't know it. And uh, because it's not my area of expertise, but I found it in my research that, in fact, 10% of world hydrogen production right now, but not as pure hydrogen in the form of synthesis gas, so mixed with uh, carbon monoxide, is actually used to reduce iron ore to iron metal in a process that's called the direct reduction of iron or DRI. Now you can do that with pure hydrogen. We just don't at the moment because natural gas is cheap and CO2 emissions are free, but you can definitely do it with hydrogen. What these, the hybrid guys did is they went a little bit further than that because there are a bunch of other steps. Once you've got the hot briquetted iron that comes from this direct iron reduction process, you have to do a bunch of other steps in order to make steel out of it. And I gather the hybrid guys did, they're doing something different than ordinary direct iron reduction. So it is kind of interesting. But the other part of it, the thing that's really interesting here is that this is just reducing the iron ore to iron metal right? That's the process that happens, uh, you know, conventionally you use coke, which is a product made from coal to reduce iron ore to iron metal in a blast furnace. And you get tons of CO2 coming out as a result of that. And that's what we need to not do anymore. But a lot of the steel making that happens, especially in North America now, is already done using what are called electric arc furnaces. And so the heat to melt the scrap metal, because it's mostly scrap metal, that's to which you add a little bit of fresh iron. The heat to melt the scrap metal comes from electricity already and has for quite some time. So steel decarbonization, it might need a little bit of hydrogen. There are hydrogen alternative technologies that are being developed as well. Other ways of reducing iron ore to iron metal that don't involve hydrogen but there, hydrogen is definitely a possibility. And it's already, as I said, in, in mixture with carbon monoxide, it's already widely used. So yeah, high merit order use for hydrogen for sure. And, and I'm going to uh, step up a level of abstraction because you and I say reduction, like everybody knows what reduction means. Define Gaining what reduction. electrons is reduction. 
I'm going to step up a level to people. Iron ore includes a lot of oxygen in the form of ferrous oxides, rust, as I understand it. And reduction. Yeah, ferrous and ferric, yeah. Yeah. And iron oxide uh, redu reduction gets rid of everything that isn't the iron, which means nope. it. Reduction, ah. reduction takes iron, iron two plus ferrous ion and iron three plus ferric ion. And uh -huh. it adds either two or three electrons to it to make iron zero, Fe zero, which is iron metal. So that's what reduction means. Reduction is gaining electrons, gaining electrons. Oh. Is reduction. So now in that process, you also have some gang, some, some junk uh, silicate rocks and so on that are mixed in with the iron oxides um, that are in your ore. And you have to get that stuff. You have to get rid of that stuff. And that process, uh, that involves uh, some other steps. There's, a, there, there's a, a flux that's used in order to remove those materials. And uh, direct iron reduction uh, only works with certain kinds, of, um, certain kinds of iron ores. It doesn't work with all of them, whereas the blast furnace is kind of more uh, forgiving. So, but yeah, that's what reduction means. And the cool thing is that if you think about it, it's like, what are we doing to, to reduce here? We're trying to take iron two and iron three and make them into iron metal using electrons. Well, why are we using hydrogen to provide electrons? Seems kind of weird, right? Why can't we use electricity to provide the electrons? And in fact, that is under study. It's not Ooh. a fully developed technology, but Ooh, it is electrochemistry, I got to tell you. Yeah, it's very cool. And, and in fact, it's the way that it's the only way that we know how to make aluminum. So what we do in aluminum, which is, I guess, made possible because aluminum has a lower melting point and aluminum salts have a lower melting point, is you start with aluminum oxide, which you make from a mineral called bauxite. And you, you mix that with, actually, it's an artificial mineral now that's made from calcium and fluorine. And you, you mix that material with the aluminum oxide and you heat it up and it melts and it forms a very hot molten puddle that you pass electricity through and you get aluminum metal out of that, uh, out of that mixture. So we do that with aluminum, but we can't do that with iron because of the melting points yet. But there are clever ways to get around it, to do it a, a different way. And people are definitely working on that aggressively. So I'm going to net this out for steel. Right now, a new steel is made with effectively metallurgical coal, coke, through that process for the reduction and, in a bunch and of stuff. some of it, and some of it is made by direct reduction of oh, iron oxide. Getting there, getting there, getting there. Some of it's used, we have this hydrogen process, and that's going to expand. So we're going to get new steel that doesn't use coal, which is good, and as Paul describes it, a high merit use of green hydrogen. But Paul also said exactly the same thing I've been saying in this space. Electric steel mini mills reached 70% of all steel consumed in the United States 15 years ago. It's, only, it's all electricity and scrap metal. And the thing I say is that, gee, we have this massive fossil fuel infrastructure with all this steel in it, which is going to be going, going to be substantially being reduced over the next 40 to 80 years. We have lots and lots and lots of scrap steel embodied today around the world. And we're going to rip a bunch of it up, all those pipelines and stuff. And we're going to turn it into new steel for things that are actually useful. <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. The, there are steel losses. 
so there's corrosion and, and other things. And we use steel and things where it's hard to get the steel back, like in concrete. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of foundations in the world that just yep. get, get buried and stay there. And the steel is just there until it rots away. So we're going to need some steel, but you're absolutely right. In the future, we will continue and in fact, enhance and increase our recycling. And the reason that recycling gets more exciting as time goes on is that recycling is inherently an energy input process. The, the way to think of a recycling process is that you take, you know, some matter, some stuff that you want to recycle and you put in a bunch of energy and you get out some useful stuff and you get entropy, waste. And you also get some matter waste. There's always some stuff that, you know, you, you end up not being able to recycle and it ends up being a waste. Well, the cool thing is that as energy gets less environmentally impactful, as its greenhouse gas emissions drop, and as we get smarter about making it, more of it comes from wind and solar and geothermal and, and the like, we'll be able to use more energy to recycle things without causing a net environmental impact. And that will be tremendous because it'll mean we'll, we'll have to mine less stuff and we'll have to do less environmental damage associated with those processes. Plus, we'll also end up disposing of less, less stuff. So this is all good. It, it's, in, it's in aid of this idea that people call circular economy, but I really call something I think is more accurate, which is optimal recycle. So what happens is optimal recycle increases as energy gets less impactful. And that's a wonderful thing. That's happening already and it's going to continue to happen. So you're dead right there, Michael. I think steel demand will, will be impacted by that and that's gonna help probably you know, to a substantial extent of the fraction of it that'll, that'll happen as a result of us using hydrogen. So I'm gonna start wrapping up. Here's my summary. Uh, and then Paul, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to, to you know, do an open-ended statement as well. But here's my summary. A lot of hydrogen is being pushed for use cases where it doesn't make any sense because it's to the advantage of fossil fuel companies to do so. And there's a lot of hydrogen advocates in the world who are stuck in a 1995 mindset where they don't realize the world has changed and they didn't do the math on hydrogen and they, didn't, they don't get it. One of the people I respect in the hydrogen space is the director of the UK Hydrogen Fuel and Fuel Cell Organization recently, who just resigned his position because he said, this blue hydrogen from fossil fuels is just crap. We can't do yeah, that. Yeah, Chris is a great guy and, and he earns a tremendous respect for me for doing that. He's very principled. Yeah. Second thing I'll say is that Hydrogen as a global market is probably going to decline in terms of use. We're going to need a lot less of it because fertilizer use is going to diminish. Petroleum refinery use is going to diminish. We're not going to be using it for non-chemical inputs. Steel is not as big of a draw as Paul and I have been discussing, as people have been assuming for uh, hydrogen. And we don't need that much more of it in a lot of other places. So the no amount of hydrogen that's being produced today will go down. And we have to focus on the high value persistent things to replace with green hydrogen, actually green hydrogen. So those are kind of the big points I like to make. Now, Paul, you know, before I say thank you for coming, uh, I'm going to give you the open-ended opportunity. You've got like 50% of people in North America, 50% around the world, Green Technica's audience for these things. You have the opportunity to close with one core thought or two core thoughts. What would they be? So two things. The first is 
I don't want to sound like I'm anti-hydrogen, uh, as I think we've been very clear in this, uh, this talk. I think Michael and I agree that hydrogen has an incredible, incredibly important role in decarbonization, but the biggest role that it has in decarbonization is that we have to decarbonize hydrogen itself. Now, for the reasons that Michael mentioned, I agree that I think we're going to reduce how much hydrogen we need, uh, certainly by the 30 million tons a year that we use right now to desulfurize fossils before we burn them. We're not going to do that in the future. So that's a quarter of it gone right there. And we might see some reductions in some other things in the way that has been described in fertilizer and in other purposes uh, that have been uh, talked about. But let's be clear about what we're talking about when we're talking about decarbonizing hydrogen itself. Let's assume for a moment that we do need to decarbonize that 90 million tons of hydrogen that we're using right now that isn't associated with fossil fuel production. Let's just do the math on that for a moment. In order to decarbonize that, we would need about 513 gigawatts of electrolyzers if they were running 24-7, 365, and they won't. So if we run them 50% of the time using the full output of wind and solar, that means 1,000 gigawatts worth of electrolyzers. And right now there isn't a single gigawatt worth of them in the whole world, but it's even bigger than that because it would require 4,500 terawatt hours of green electricity. And in 2018, which is the most current accurate statistics that I can get my hands on, all of the wind and solar in the whole world only added up to less than half of that, 2,100 terawatt hours. So, if there's one message to take away from today's talk, it's this. Hydrogen is not a decarbonization solution to anything and won't be for decades. It is actually a giant decarbonization problem that we haven't even begun to try to solve. And it's being sold aggressively by people that want to keep the fossil fuel paradigm in place as long as possible because that's in their financial interest. So that's a very simple statement, and I think it's very well borne out in my writings. You can have a look on at my LinkedIn profile. I have lots of articles there where I put the facts and figures and the numbers and the references behind all of this in order to demonstrate that what I'm saying to you isn't just my opinion. It's got a basis in fact. And that's where I would leave it. Okay. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Paul Martin, a senior technical fellow at Zeton, experienced chemical engineer, and not the former Prime Minister of Canada. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Michael, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.